So what I do here is talk about what I call zones, which are if you take the four major quadrants and you look at each one from an inside subjective view, you'll get one particular type of perspective. And if you look at them from an outside exterior viewpoint, you'll get another type of perspective. What yep. this looks at is zone seven, which is first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. So it's the seventh and eighth, the inside and the outside view from the lower right quadrant. So as we'll see when we go through this, uh, seventh person view is the view of what all those material exterior things look like from within. So mm -hmm. we actually see a third person plural view because we take up a third person plural perspective. And that actually generates the objects that we'll see. And, and then that's one major form of systems theory. It turns out mm -hmm. that there are actually two, and as we'll see from quotes from authorities in the field, there are only two major forms of systems theory. And that right. perfectly with the inside and the outside of the lower right quadrant. Uh, you'll be amazed at how much the actual system sciences themselves describe themselves as this is the inside view of reality or this is the outside view of reality. Yeah. So um, we'll go through particularly this zone seven or the inside interior view of multiple objective realities. I often talk about you know, the upper left quadrant can be summarized with a single word, being. The upper right, doing. The lower left, being together. The lower right, doing together, right? And so when we're looking at that, that sort of dimension of doing together, how we do together, we can take either that third person view or that first person view, and they're both going to disclose, you know, complementary, I think, realities right. but quite different they're they're different perspectives on a system right. and you know i think you made a solid case for why we need both now tying that back to you know revolutionary social transformation it sounds like what you're saying is you know in the essay you talk about how we have a base this is using karl marx's terms a base in the lower right quadrant and then a superstructure in the lower left quadrant. And Marx used to stack one on top of the other. Right. And you make the point to say, no, 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 these aren't, these are, you know, uh, uh, the, the super, the culture, the lower left is not downstream from the lower right. right. It emerges alongside the lower right. right quadrant. But it sounds like what you're saying is that a base, if we want to understand the base in the lower right quadrant, we need to take nothing less than a zone seven and zone eight perspective right. in order to clearly see that base. So one thing I've been thinking a lot about is how each stage brings different means of generating, preserving, and distributing knowledge, and how those different means have an enormous impact on our perceptions, our behaviors, and our sense of shared meaning. 
Information and knowledge move in very particular ways at each of these stages. And the ways that this information moves in a society will always determine how that stage self-organizes and how individuals in a society go about identifying things like truth, beauty, and goodness. So Ken, I've created a map, which I sent to you, 12 right. pages. Colin printed them out for you. I'll post it to uh, screen share when sure. I edit this video. It's a very good app. It's very Oh, you liked it? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it's very large, very robust, and it tracks the evolution of communications paradigms over human history. So in this map, I zone seven. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. That's what I was trying to do is really take a look at a developmental look at zone seven as it's unfolded over time. And there's some zone eight sort of pieces to it, of course, sure. when we talk about like sure. the frequency and the duration of the communication and all that. But yeah, it's really focused on, on zone seven, that self-organizing piece. Um, because what, again, I want to look at how each paradigm from each stage generates, preserves, and distributes knowledge, right. how that knowledge is curated, and how each of these zone seven stages radically influences our perceptions, our behaviors, and our meaning. Right. So one thing that I, the first thing I noticed, Ken, and this was fascinating to me, the first thing I noticed is that if I separate these stages into what I call early stage right. and late stage, we see something absolutely fascinating. What I found is that the communications technologies, paradigms, and bases that emerge in the early periods of each of these stages are typically translative, right? They support the deep features of that stage that is coming online. Right. However, the technologies and paradigms that emerge in the late phase of that stage don't just reinforce that current stage, but actually lead kind of directly to a transformation to the next stage. They're transformative technologies. This was fascinating and tremendously clarifying when I, when I noticed this. So we see, for example, how the innovation of spoken language, which first emerged in the crimson stage, actually allowed magenta to emerge. And of course, magenta magic is very verbal based. It's very word magic. I can't differentiate my representation of the thing from the thing itself. Right. And that's the source of, of all magic. Right. The innovation of written language during magenta and red stages allowed amber to emerge. And amber fully depends on a codification of the written word, whether it's the Bible or the Torah or the U.S. Constitution. Right. It's some written code that can survive much longer than data and information and knowledge can survive in an oral society, for example. Then with Amber, we got the innovation of libraries, manuscripts, universities, the printing press, all of this came out of the amber stage and all of this became like the bedrock for orange out of orange we got the innovation of electronic media television radio and film which allowed the green stage to emerge and then finally with the green stage late stage green has given us things like not only the internet but now things like you know social media and uh you know virtual reality we might even argue artificial intelligence, though I kind of place that more of as a teal emergent than a green emergent. Right. But still, we're seeing how green's sort of informational technologies, communications technologies, allowed, for example, integral to exist. Right. We wouldn't have been able to do something like integral naked or today integral life. We wouldn't have been able to constellate this global community, you know, from that 0.5% to the maybe 5% of teal 
that that are out there, we're actually able to kind of bring them together into a single sort of you know loose group right. um, because of the the technologies that Green gave us. So all of this has led me to bring just a lot more focus to these kinds of Zone Seven realities, each of which corresponds to the Zone Eight techno-economic systems in the paradigms that we see in your classic four quadrants. So agrarian to horticultural to industrial to informational, etc. Right. I tend to make these zone seven information and communication patterns as primary as the techno-economic stages themselves because they directly show us exactly how society self-organizes, the different information flows that reinforce that society, right. and how those information flows dramatically influence our interior perceptions, our cultural narratives, and our individual behaviors. So the questions are, what do you think of this overall approach? Would you agree that looking at the self-organizing currents of Zone 7 interactions is as revealing as looking at the Zone 8 techno-economic systems themselves? And is there anything else that we might want to track, particularly when it comes to my map um, that I sent you, of how these communication paradigms have evolved over time? Yeah, I think your map is fairly complete, by the way. I mean, I suppose I could think of some other factors that could be addressed, but none really jumped to mind because it's a very complete view. What we're looking at with these is it's kind of hard to picture in a certain sense because, well, if we look at the relation between mind and brain, that's the same as the relation between the lower left or zone three and zone seven. The mm -hmm. lower left being the mind and zone seven being the brain. Sort of distributed, you mean? So like distributed mind, distributed collective consciousness, and then distributed brain, really. I mean, that's that's what the internet is. That's what AI is. It's a distributed that's right. uh, consciousness, but in exterior form. Intelligence, we might say. Yeah, and when we think of a zone seven and we're thinking of the relationship with the brain, what we notice is that the brain is very much a first-person reality. And that's how we experience it, as an experience of an I, a me, a mind. But we don't think of the brain that way. Or if we think of uh, the brain being the seat of linguistic awareness, for example, then we imagine that there are linguistic symbols someplace being transmitted by the brain, but we don't experience it as, you know, I experience, oh, this, the upper right parietal portion of my brain, um, it, it's a very similar to the relation between consciousness and a computer, let's say. The, the computer has all the information on it, and it will seem to generate um, an actual person, if I let it or I program it to. Um, but we never really experience the computer as a first person experience, although there's some clear relationship between first and third person, and uh, the brain is somehow at the extreme of that experience. 
And that's what Zone 7 is. It's a, a bunch mm -hmm. of computer programming, in a sense. And that's why artificial intelligence is so easily realized as a Zone 7 phenomena. It's very mm. like the, a computer program. So here we're going to look at a particular kind of techno-economic base that we are living in today, that we're actually having this conversation within right now, right. Uh, which is, you know, integral in the social media age. Right. Um, which really has to do with how our perceptions and behaviors and shared meaning, again, is being influenced at this very moment by these systems. So as I mentioned earlier, with the social media age comes a number of deep meta crises facing humanity. Some of these crises are being addressed from within these social media platforms, and a great many others are being created by these same platforms, right. such as the overall delegitimization of many of our most foundational political, economic, medical, educational, and media systems. Now, in many cases, these crises are appropriate. Some of these systems have not been working very well for a little while now, right? So some of the, some of the sort of uh, skepticism that we're bringing to these systems is, is maybe a bit appropriate. And they might even be overdue in a lot of ways. However, they're also oftentimes profoundly exaggerated because lies, propaganda, and misinformation ends up flooding through our uncurated, postmodern, decentralized social media feeds, where we no longer have things like communities of the adequate, for example, who are right. sort of curating reality and telling us, well, this is, this is a little bit more true than that. And what's worse, right. Ken, is that social media allows very little opportunity for new higher stage solutions to emerge, precisely right. because it's an inherently decentralized, flattened and uncurated platform where all of our anti-hierarchical that's right it's anti-hierarchical right. and this is true of twitter of facebook of you know of, of what have you and it's really where our political narratives and confirmation biases are being reinforced by an algorithm whose only purpose is to drive user engagement for the sake of profit. Right. So we have this combination of green sort of surfaces, but also underlying maybe mean orange meme kind of motivations right. that are actually contributing to this epistemic collapse. Now, the goal of maximizing user engagement means that social media platforms are inherently resistant to the kinds of big picture views that Integral provides. Right. And instead, they tend to reward the lowest common denominator views that are typically fairly low depth, usually coming from red or amber or maybe umber. Uh, and therefore, they have a much wider span, right? Because just about every single one of us has these stages alive within us in some way. And we often reconsolidate to some of these previous stages, which may be a little bit more stable than the stage we're currently at. We can reconsolidate whenever we're in times of high stress, high anxiety, high complexity. Um, and the problem, Ken, is, of course, the vast majority of people don't know when they're reconsolidating because they don't have a map in their heads saying, oh, this is an orange thought. This is a green thought. Right. This is an amber thought. To them, it's just a, a, a jumble of conflicting feelings or beliefs or views or values or what have you. Um, and this, I think, allows deeply regressive views and narratives to proliferate across our society. Right. Now, I would personally make the argument, Ken, that social media, 
this era in general has not been altogether kind to integral for all the reasons that I just stated. Social media is a base in the lower right quadrant that is not altogether supportive of the integral superstructures in the lower left quadrant. And yet, it's the primary technological base that Integral has been unfolding within for the last 15 years or so, yeah. for better and for worse. Yeah. And as for whether we're actually talking about a Zone 7 reality, mm -hmm. um, notice that virtually all social media is digitalized. It's all computerized. And I just said the relation of the mind to the brain, which is like zone seven, is just like a computer. And all of social media is computerized. So that's where we're getting this entire zone seven morass created. And all the problems that go with zone seven and all of its particularly in the green era with its anti-hierarchical emphasis and all of that is, is it's alarming, but it also definitely fits zone seven. It is a computer-like brain. And that's part of the difficulty with the whole zone seven reality. It's just like this giant computer that's just programmed and it is sort of automated and goes on this programs by itself and we're just sort of along for the ride and right. like most computer um, actual things that you're watching on a computer it's non-hierarchical and anti-hierarchical and that's always been my main complaint with green and as you pointed out, I would write about that a lot in things from Boomeritis on down. And I mm -hmm. would always point out the anti-hierarchical nature of green. And that rules out its ability to enthusiastically grasp developmental hierarchies or any sort of growth hierarchies or evolutionary hierarchies all of which unfold in a hierarchical, transcend and include fashion. And that's what makes them yep. so fascinating and so interesting. Yeah. But not to green, it's just really <laughs> uh, amazing. And I've always noticed that and been really disturbed by it. Yeah. So that's still the case now that we're talking about Zone 7 social media, it's just a big, big problem. So that's where we are. So as I mentioned earlier, with the social media age comes a number of deep meta crises facing humanity. And that's exactly right. And we don't have growth models that we are willing to immediately apply to any of these problems yeah. because we have this green bias, this boomeritis, anti-hierarchical fervor. And it's just a nightmare when that happens. And it's the nature of our social media world. 
people talk about the problem between the divorcing our mind from our body, and that's the human predicament. Well, computer is not helping that at all. Right. But we're right. right now, we don't have any bodily contact. We're not actually talking to each other. We're not actually seeing each other. We're seeing digital displays. And those right. are completely non-sensory. So that's a real problem that humanity is facing. And AI is just going to make it worse. Yeah. Ken, I love that you brought that up because... When you and I did our talk about a year ago, we talked about um, AI and art. And after I produced that episode, I, um, you know, one of the things we'll talk about this in just a minute with our last question. But one of the things I've been doing is creating these polarity maps for all of our content. I'll do the same with this episode when I publish it. One of the polarity maps that I came up with for that particular conversation was the difference between I called it embodied intelligence and distributed intelligence. And that is a vital polarity, and we need yep. to attend to both of those poles and not just manage and harmonize those poles, but actually integrate those poles. Right. Right. And it's truly amazing how useful this lens is and how so many of these polarities are fundamentally organized around the core polarities of integral theory itself. Yep. In other words, we typically see polarities between quadrants, individual and collective or interior and exterior, we also see them within quadrants, so polarities within the lower left quadrant, for example. And we might see polarities that are sort of like part-whole polarities that exist between the products of one stage and the products of the next stage. And when you're making that transition, it's pretty easy to hold those two sets of products as its own kind of polarity. One of the things I often say about this kind of polarity thinking is it's the kind of thinking that generates things like integral meta-theories in the first place. And it's been an implicit part of your own work ever since your very first book, Spectrum of Consciousness, and particularly No Boundary. Now, when it comes to social transformation, there are all sorts of polarities that we want to keep in mind, including the primary polarity of, of your essay, which we've been talking about today, between the lower left superstructure and the lower right quadrant base. But another piece that I wanted to add to the puzzle is around the relationship between personal transformation and social transformation. Because, of course, our cultural superstructure is really a nexus aggregate of all of our individual structures of development. And so when our personal transformation is neglected across a population, the overall cultural superstructure gets diminished. So I sent you a polarity map that I recently created around personal transformation and social transformation, which I think helps us understand how important it is to, quote, be the change that we want to see in the world and how it helps us avoid the traps of complacency, hypocrisy, and something we've seen a lot of these days, performative virtue signaling. Particularly understanding the role that personal transformation plays in social transformation and vice versa. Because what we're talking about is, again, transforming both together. And that's what's important. And just when you understand personal transformation, what you're asked to understand is that there is no pre-given world that you actually co-create the environment that you perceive. 
And that gives you an enormous role in the world you're in. You're actually co-creating that world. And that gives you an enormous amount of power and control over the world that you tend to think of yourself as just being plopped in and just right. is, uh, impacting all of your senses and you're passively taking it all in. That's not really true. And so you want to learn the relation between this personal enactment and co-creation um, and bringing forth of the world around you. And then, of course, there's the world's impact on you. And so you want to keep both of those in mind. And it really is an effort of keeping both of them in mind. It takes a genuine force to hold both of those in your non-grapefruit-looking mind. <laughs> um, and the way that we co-create and enact our world um, also gives us the key to our own self-transformation. Because what we have to look at in the ways we create our world are the ways that we actually transform ourselves. And that's something that is a learning process. You can learn to self-transform. <clears throat> and you'll find yourself doing that when you're working on changing the world. So you want to keep both of those in mind, and you want to activate both of those processes. And that will give you a self and world transforming agenda. And that's good. That's exactly what yeah. we want to do. So yeah. that's sort of the, a brief summary of what I would say about getting both of those together. Um, it's important. That's great.